If you've ever skied or been to the beautiful town of uh, Zermatt, you will know that if you stand in the centre of that uh, beautiful Victorian uh, town, two things capture your gaze. The first is on the screen there. It is the amazing mountain called the Matterhorn. And especially so as the, the sun sets on it, because on that little face there, the, the sun glows orange and it reflects down into the town centre. It is quite breathtaking. There you are, you kind of all gather in the town centre, you're exhausted from the day's skiing, you're supping on the refreshing drink of your choice, and you're just wowed by this amazing orangey haze. But in the centre of Zermatt, there's, there's something else which captures your gaze when you're sat around in this uh, old Victorian square with a fountain in the centre. Because the other thing in line of sight of this amazing mountain is a graveyard. The graveyard's huge, and the church is tiny. And there are row after row of gravestones, each telling a story, often of an untimely and premature death. The majority of those, of this chap here, was 24. Brave men, mountaineers, skiers, explorers, who kind of pushed the limits of human adventure. And despite all of their attempts to conquer God's creation, they fell like all of us will one day. That is, they fell to their deaths. Perhaps one of the greatest men was, you can't really see him here, was a man called Edward Wimper. Uh, He was the first man actually to climb up and then down the Matterhorn. But Wimper died a very bitter man. He was a heroic uh, man who'd done all these achievements, but he was shunned until very late in life by the kind of the aristocracy of the time, especially the British Mountaineering Society. He longed to be part of that elite group. It was everything to be part of that group to him. But sadly, his working class upbringing and his slightly kind of blunt manner with them meant that he was pushed out and he was always alone. And he, like so many people buried beside him, believed that life was found in achievement, in, in being you know, better than all, the, uh, all of his other peers. What he could get hold of was so important. Who he could be with, relate to, it was everything to him. But Wimper, in his search for the greater, more meaningful and fulfilled life, missed out. Sadly, he wasn't alone. He wanted to really live. But in the end, he just really died. Over the last two weeks uh, in church, we've been looking at this one singular chapter of uh, Romans. Romans chapter 8. Here we are. It speaks of many things. But of one main thing is that it speaks of life. True life. Life in the spirit, as it says a number of times. See, those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ, his perfect life and his substitutionary death on the cross, they have the promise of the Spirit of God entering our hearts. And therefore we can know what the Bible calls and what Romans 8 particularly calls true life. The life that God longs for each of us here today. It's a life where God's Spirit dwells within Guiding and directing us, subjectively through our hearts, but objectively through his word, the Bible, and by the assistance of the Spirit there. It is a life, a true life, where the Christian can actually say the grass is greener. But the Christian can also say the sky is bluer as well. 
Because we then see with God in our hearts, we see things as they truly are in the creation around us. We see God's hand at work. And we appreciate that more now than ever before. In a sense, it's life in its truest form. The Christian life is therefore a life lived in appreciation for what God has done. Firstly, what he's doing in our lives and all around us today, but more importantly, what he's done for us for today, for tomorrow, and for eternity as well. That is, Christians live recognizing that we can't earn our way to heaven. We can't save ourselves. Eternity is if like God's business, and we receive it by grace. So this true life, given by trusting Jesus, having his spirit in our hearts, is life in all its fullness, but moreover, it is life eternal. Every day, for eternity. The Christian life, as we saw last week, is lived and understood with Jesus Christ as Lord. That is, he's king of everything. Every decision over our hearts, over our minds, everything. We saw last week that who we are, that is our nature, as Paul put it in Romans 8, Uh, is also our minds, our lives, and our futures, all of those four things are inextricably linked. That is, what Paul was kind of saying within his logic last week is, you can't buy out of one and expect the others. If you do that, you render God unjust, and that is just impossible. So Romans 8 is showing us that Christians, those with the Spirit of God in their lives, will have, we saw last week, two things, and we'll see in this week two things as well. Last week we saw, as the Spirit of God enters our hearts, we get a new mindset, a new way of thinking, if you like. Secondly, we saw, it gives us a new sense of life. Life now, but life eternal, more importantly. And now this week we see that the Christian life, the Spirit in our hearts, brings two things. They're on your sheets. Firstly, a new obligation... And secondly, a new identity. So firstly, here's our first point. We have a new obligation. Look at the verse 12 again with me if you can. You'll see it written there. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. Literally, that word obligation should kind of read, we have a debt. Now, some of us know what that feels like. We have a debt. Now, think about what obligations are like, though. They come in two forms, I think. They come in the form of a moral obligation and a legal obligation too. Now we have legal obligations, don't we? Of course, as citizens of the country, we have to abide by the laws of the land. Even those annoying speeding laws, you know, the kind of ones on the M25 or the the changing kind of speed limits. Even when there's no cameras, we have an obligation to follow those laws within the land. But we also have moral obligations or duties or commitments As a father, as a husband, I have have that moral obligation to protect and care for my wife and for my boys. And we all have those kind of obligations, don't we? Whether moral or legal, the obligation that can come from within, perhaps a duty or from without, a law. Now let me give you a a silly example, but if I see a Krispy Kreme donut, I feel very much bound to eat that donut. It is an obligation that comes from within. We call it greed, but it's still an obligation that I've kind of have on myself there. More seriously, though, look at verse 12. Therefore, it begins pointing you back to what has come before in verse 5 to 11. Therefore, because we have the spirit in us who raised us from the dead, that's the previous verse. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature, he says. 
to live according to it. For if you live according to the uh, sinful nature, consequence, you will die. But by contrast, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, consequence, you will live. See, as Christians, we have this new obligation if we're a Christian here today. And Paul is very plain, isn't he? Very simple. It is not to live according to the sinful nature. And perhaps that's very kind of Bible language, isn't it, today? And I just want to say it's probably something like it's not to live according to your gut instinct. You know, kind of natural urge with inside us. Early in this letter, Paul has made it very clear that naturally we're all bound to kind of follow our basic urges, the gut instincts. We know that, don't we? I don't need to spell that out for us. But the distinction that Paul is making here is that Christians, we have the Spirit of God in our hearts. So we become essentially what Paul describes in the previous chapter, chapter essentially it's like a battleground uh, between the sinful nature that still remains, but also the nature of the Spirit, which longs to serve and please God. And the point here is that if you know no battle, then you can have no assurance that the Spirit is in your heart. But here the point Paul is making is that we owe that sinful nature that's within all of us nothing if we're Christians. That is, we don't have to pander to its desires and live according to it. Now that's very easy for me to say right here, isn't it? It's hard to live out. But the consequences are spelled out here. Look at them. Live according to the nature. Uh, Look at it, verse 13 at the end of it. To live according to it, you will die. Like those climbers that met those premature deaths in, in Zermatt, we all will die. We know that. But the death that's mentioned here speaks more of a long lasting death. It's an eternal death in the original, uh, a separation from God's goodness to an eternity only knowing and experiencing his justice. Work it through. Just look how the logic kind of flows through. If Christ has given us his spirit in our hearts, it brings life. Paul says, How can you live according to the flesh? Since that leads you to this death. How can you do that? Again, the practical implications are spelt out at the end of verse 13. If you, if, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, I just want to say, as I said last week a number of times, these can be really hard words. For some of you here, you'll be kicking against them already in your heart and mind. But for many here, and recognize this is so, these are words of great assurance, of great comfort. One American pastor I was reading, uh, who was commenting on this passage, simply said this, hard words produce soft people, and soft words produce hard people. That is hard-hearted people before God. Let me just say, these are hard words. I recognize that. And we're going to find it tough a little bit today. The putting to death of sin, uh, which he, he mentions in that verse, is at its heart recognition that our rebellion against God, whether that's just ignoring him or just blatantly going against him, it is that, it's rebellion. And the Bible calls that, it's a small word, but it's sin. It's just saying sin is sin here. 
And it turns lead, and in turn leads to decisively a need for us to put that to death. Literally, he's saying it's a killing that needs to take place in your life. And secondly, note in that it's something that we have to do as Christians. We're obliged, it's an obligation. We're not to be passive in this work. It's not going to be done for us, if you like. So if you have that lingering attitude, that behaviour, that addiction that's dominated your life for too long, you can blame no one but yourself. It's up to you to kill it, Paul is saying. It says you put it to death, kill it. But the wonderful news about this passage is you're not alone in this task. Have a look, it says that it's by the Spirit as well. He says it immediately before. But how does that work, you might ask? Well, it's the Spirit who gives us the desire, the determination, and the discipline to reject sin and lies. But we must, again, take the initiative. The Spirit works through the Word of God. That very thing that you have in your hands is enabling the Spirit to come into you, if you like. So if we don't read the Bible, God's objective, truthful, loving word, how can we know his power in our lives? Very practically, therefore, in, loving respo- in response to his loving instructions in the word, let me just give you a, a kind of example of what this putting to death might look like. Men, here. What is the thing that you struggle with most? There'll be a number of things, I'm sure, but let's just think of one. Uniformly, I guess many of us will struggle with things like lust. I remember kind of having this false assumption that when I was a younger lad, I thought, oh, that'll go away when I get married. And all the married blokes are going, you're a bit naive, weren't you? And then I had that kind of thought, well, once I hit 35, once I'm just so tired from life, then it'll go away. And all of the older guys are going, what a stupid young man he was. And then I had that really stupid and naive thought. I thought, well, if I have kids, that'll be sorted. That'll sort it out. It just doesn't, does it? Now, what it does, it's a lifelong battle to honour our wives and honour God. It requires a great deal of self-awareness. It requires a great deal of humility so that we can avoid circumstances and recurring temptation. What do we need to put to death? Oh, it's going to be bespoke for every single one of you, isn't it? Is it pride? It could be lust. It could be uh, just sort of arrogance, envy, bitterness. The great preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he preached up in Westminster about 50 years ago. He said this about this passage. He says, you need to pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is. That's sin in your life. And that's when you've really dealt with it, he says. You know, and only you know, how violent that you need to be against that sin. But do so, if you like, with the sense of obligation to God's gift of salvation and his spirit in your heart, if you're a Christian here today. And if you take up this fight, what he says, you will live. You will live. Paul is not contradicting himself here. He's not saying eternal life is kind of reward for self-denial and discipline. He's not saying that. He's simply saying that life now will be enjoyed so much more. It will be so much more satisfying. You will know so many more blessings from God for those who put to death the misdeeds of the body. 
And if you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you will need a whole heap of convincing that that is true. And can I encourage you, look at the people around you, the friend who brought you. They should, if you like, be the advert for that. Sorry, there are no promises. I can't open the Bible and say, hey, if you become a Christian, you're going to be super healthy for the rest of your life. I can make no promises as I open the Bible and say, hey, if you turn to Christ and become a Christian, the Spirit of God into your heart, oh, you'll suddenly become really, really wealthy and drive an amazing... No, it doesn't work like that. Rather, there's life through death. Eternal life through Christ's death. Full life as God's children. Life with purpose. Life with joy. And total assurance. As a Christian, you should sit here and think, when you get to heaven, the moment that happens, you should be utterly exhausted from battling. But there is no better way. Secondly then, those led by the Spirit, second point, have a new identity. Verse 14 to 17. Have a look down again, verse 14, you'll get the idea. It begins with the word because, and it's there to show us that the previous verses showing that being sons of God, children of God, as these next verses point us towards, are linked to us killing our sin, putting to death that sinful nature. And the logic goes something like this. If we, led by the Spirit of God in our hearts, fight against our sin, then so too we will be, verse 14, sons of God. That is, adopted children of God. And notice it it says we are, it's present tense, you see that? It's not the Christian life is kind of this wistful, I hope it might be in the future kind of thing. It's now, today. If you're not a Christian here today, this is available now. Therefore, it's an assurance and privilege beyond all other. The assurance is the battle. The privilege is the title. You become a child of God, a son of God. What comes from that? Well, I think simply uh, the implication of this passage is that God replaces fear in our lives with freedom. When we become Christians, we decisively receive a spirit of belonging to God. It is a great comfort, but it is also wonderfully liberating, wonderfully freeing. But if if you're here today and you're not a Christian, again, think, what do you fear? Are you really free in the way that you live your life? Because I guess you convince yourself that that is true. And Paul is speaking here in the context to law-abiding Jewish converts who before were worried because they could never meet God's standards. There was this kind of prevailing fear. They were slaves to fear, he describes them earlier. But is that applicable to many of us? Well, I, I want you to think, what are you fearful of? Especially if you're not a Christian here today. Is it not making the cut at work? Not establishing yourself in in, business or not getting into that relationship or sustaining that relationship? Being a failure as a father or as a mother? What is it you fear? And how do you know that, for example, you're a slave to that fear? I wonder, what is the thing that dominates your heart and your mind? Can you honestly say that you are truly free? 
See, the Christian, by contrast, having received the spirit of sonship, they belong to God. They've been adopted, liberated, free. They're part of the family. They now live for someone else. No longer slaves to the fear of life and the circumstances within their lives. They then live for God. It's utterly liberating. And the significance of this adoption into God's family is crucial. Let me just work through what it would look like in those times, okay? In Roman times, if a father went to adopt a child, that child was chosen by the adoptive father to continue his name, to follow on the legacy, if you like, of the family. They would inherit the estate as well. Now, the adopted son was no way considered, it was important in Roman law that this is the case, they could never be considered as inferior to any other child within the family. They would receive the same affection, the same hugs, the same kisses, and the same inheritance as well. Those led by the Spirit, having the privilege of being adopted children of God, what does it say? You can call God Abba, Father. See, the choice that's being laid in front of the readers here is this. You either face God as judge or you face him as father with all the privileges of that relationship. You're going to be a slave to fear of God's judgment or a child of God and receive all of this wonderful inheritance. Abba is a very family kind of term. It's a better translated, I guess, daddy. Or Papa, if we're Italian, but we're not. It's intimate and it's affectionate. It's a term that Christ used of of his own heavenly Father. And the Spirit in our hearts witnesses or testifies, in verse 16, to the fact, if if we do have a Spirit, that we are God's children too. That we will be recipients of this great inheritance. And that we can call God Father, Abba. That is, I think the point here is that we should know if the Spirit's in our hearts that we are God's children today with utter assurance. My two boys, Barnaby and Zachary, okay, they know that they are my boys, firstly because they've inherited quite remarkable good looks. I'm only joking on that one, but it did wake one or two of you up, that's good. Actually, it is scary, isn't it, when you're a dad and you begin to see some of the things of you in your children. Isn't that quite scary, Nathan? No, I wasn't picking on you at all. Okay, But Barnaby and Zachary, they know that they are my children because they experience me being their father every day. They're familiar with me. They're familiar with my voice and with my characteristics, good and bad. Their relationship to their father, you see, testifies to them in their hearts that I am their daddy. And so too with our Heavenly Father, as we hear the Spirit testifying through the Word into our minds, as we follow Him in His Word and live for Him, that which we looked at last week, all this and more testifies to the fact that you are, if you do that, one of God's children, and that God is your Father. So you see, if our faith in Jesus' life and his work on the cross addresses our status before God in relation to the law, which is what we looked at in verse 1 and 4, 1 to 4, what we're seeing here is adoption addresses the relationship we have with God as now our Father. But it keeps getting better. 
For as we see in this last verse, there are two implications. We get to verse 17 now. There are two glorious implications of being children of God. So to conclude, as we look to the future, let's look at verse 17 again, just as we close. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So as adopted children of God, who can call God Father, we are heirs. Being brought into what's called a filial relationship, father-child relationship with God, it means that we are heirs of a promise. Being an heir means you inherit the estate of your father. Now recognise that who's the only legitimate heir of God? It is Christ. Because he is the, one, the only one who's perfectly lived up to the, to the law. He deserves the inheritance because he met the standard. We, if we are Christians and have the Spirit in our hearts, we are heirs by grace and undeserved kindness. It is only through that kindness that we will ever inherit from God. Now, I'm sure my boys, as I mentioned before, they'll be thrilled at the estates that they're going to inherit from me. I'm sure it will help them towards their university education for a week. But as heirs of God, it says you will receive, what, an internal inheritance. Now, of course, the Spirit of God, being in our hearts by faith, It's the first fruit of that inheritance. That is, it's a very kind, free sample to savour of the product of our eternal inheritance, if you like. But what is that inheritance which the Bible talks of so often? Well, another letter in the New Testament, 1 Peter, for example, chapter 1, verse 4, speaks of it in these terms. It says it's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Kept in heaven for us. It sounds brilliant, doesn't it? Because everything that you have right now will perish, spoil or fade. It sounds amazing. We know there are glorious riches in other portions of the New Testament. Beyond compare, awaiting for us, uh, for the faithful in heaven. We speak of mansions of glory, endless delight, eternal life with no pain or suffering. That will not perish, spoil or fade. What an amazing inheritance it will be. Again, I remember praying with my boys a, a few years ago now. One of them asked, you know, as my boys do quite often, I'm sure your children do, do too, what's heaven like? And there we were discussing it and uh, talking about it. And I said, well, it's going to be like, it's full of amazing things from God. And it's, it's all these kindnesses, nothing bad whatsoever. And the question was, will there be swimming pools in heaven? Oh, yeah, there'll be swimming I'm sure there will be. You know, okay, here we go. And then the other one said, will there be trampolines in heaven? As well? We had a trampoline at the time. They love trampolining. And then there was a sort of a slight silence as kind of young kids kind of worked through the machinations of having those two things in heaven. And then one of them plucked on and went, will there be trampolines in swimming pools in heaven? <laughs> and I'm sure there will be. It'll be okay. And at that point, they just started giggling. Because it was too good to imagine. It sounds infantile, doesn't it? But in a sense... It it pushes us to say, what is too good for you to even comprehend? No more crying. No more mourning. No more pain. That kind of means a lot right now to some of us. 
The inheritance spoken of here could be the delights of heaven, but equally it could be just to be with God himself, face to face with the creator of all. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way, uh, he is our all in all. And I think Paul is kind of pointing to both of these elements. Our internal inheritances, our internal our internal inheritance is both the riches and delights of eternity but more so it is to know God to dwell with him to be with him God will be everything to us he'll be our all in all so we're heirs heirs of God but also it says we're co-heirs with Christ now you see what Christ rightfully receives we receive the same by grace but there is an if I don't know if you spotted that in that last verse Paul qualifies our inheritance rights with two means of identification. Two outcomes are at the heart of of relationship with Christ and following Christ. So you are co-heirs with Christ if, first and foremost, you share in his suffering. That is, we're not to leave tonight actually kind of looking for a bit of a beating out on the streets. It's not that. But rather we understand and accept that Our relationship with Christ and his spirit means that we identify with his willingness to suffer in the service of God. And few of us will will ever face the barrel of a gun, but many do around the world today. But no doubt many, if not all of us, will suffer as we make Christ known in our neighbourhoods, amongst our friends at work. If you do not suffer, if you cannot identify with the suffering of Christ, then you, well, you work it out. The implication's there, isn't it? Hard words make soft people. But as co-heirs with Christ, we also share in his glory, lastly. As Christ is glorified in heaven, eternally dwelling with his Father, so too will we if we trust in him. But the point the whole way through the New Testament is you cannot separate these two things. Share in suffering, share in glory. If we're co-heirs with Christ of the spirits and hearts, then it is both of those together. Suffering glory, suffering glory. <coughs> suffering is the path to glorification. If we expect the same inheritance as Christ, then surely we should expect the same path to that inheritance. Let me conclude if I can. If you're a Christian here today, let me summarise like this. In the eternal freedom that that faith in Christ's life and death brings, I guess this passage points us to thank God, our Father, daily, as we live for Him, as we love Him, as we put to death sin for Him, in response to his gift of salvation, and even as we're prepared to suffer for him. Why? So one day we will face him in glory and not in judgment. And finally, for for those of you who would say, hey, I'm not a Christian. I hope you felt welcome today. I hope you feel welcome. There's a whole bunch of things upstairs, refreshments. I hope you feel welcome. But let me just say this as we close. If you're, not a here, if you're here and you're not a Christian, 
Recognize that for all of your achievements, your abilities, your wealth and your possessions, however many or however little, you will one day end up, as all of us will, in a graveyard. And at that moment, at the end of time and at the beginning of eternity, you won't be sat around in a Victorian town square marveling at the beauty of the Matterhorn and supping on a cool pims, like I was. But two things will capture your gaze. One will be the glory of God, but not now in his creation, but just in his awesome presence. And the second thing that will capture your gaze, I think, will be this. The Bible tells us it will be God's justice removed from his love. The temporary glimmer of that justice seen in a gravestone, many of which I saw in that cemetery in, uh, in Zermatt, will, re- will be replaced with the eternal reality of his righteous, fair judgment. Again, I, I want to apologise because I don't like saying these things. But this is what God tells us in his word, the Bible. And this is what your friends who have sat here and family who have sat here believe. They're really hard words to say. We've all heard them. And I hope you see, therefore, in hearing them and responding to them, that we are soft people, humble before God, recipients of his grace. I wonder what you will listen to today. Which words will you listen to? Your own? Of your own making all, will you listen to God's words? Let's pray as we close. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Heavenly Father, there is so much in just that singular verse, but yet it is so rich and a sense beyond our imagination, so wonderful. We are so undeserving to be heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. But help us if you like, to be recipients of that grace, that undeserved kindness. And if we are resistant to that gift of grace right now, please soften our hearts. Help us hear these hard words said in love and in kindness and in warning so that we might know all this inheritance And to be able to declare with great passion and just joy that we are children of God, that we have purpose and freedom found in him. His glory is beyond compare and I pray that that may be known today in some people's lives. Amen. As we close our service, we're going to stand and sing. It's 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 a modern hymn. It it takes us right to that pinnacle, that centre point within history where Christ hung on the cross. Let's stand and sing together how deep the Father's love. How deep the Father's love for us. Beyond all measure that he 